0: Well, please grab your Bible this morning and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. For the past few weeks, we have been lingering rather slowly through the spiritual cemetery. Our journey began just a few weeks ago when we took some extended time to, to gaze at our, our spiritual tombstones, In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, we learned seven vital lessons that concern every person who has yet to receive grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we were Christians, we learned that we were spiritual zombies. We loved sin. Before we were Christians, we loved the world. We loved the devil. We loved ourselves. Before we received grace, we longed for spiritual or rather sinful pleasures. And we learned in verse 3 that before we received grace, before we became followers of Jesus Christ, we lived under the wrath of God. Last week, we learned that there is only one way out of the spiritual graveyard. Our only hope is is for God to intervene. And that's exactly what happens in verses 4 to 7. Verse 4 begins with what I shared with you last week is probably the most important conjunction in the book of Ephesians and probably the most conjunction in the book of the Bible. It's the word but. After three verses of examining our spiritual tombstones before grace, we learned that God is Intervened for us. God made us alive together with Christ. He raised us with Christ and He seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. In other words, salvation is generated exclusively by God. God alone is behind our salvation. We turn back to the book of Jonah, chapter 2, and we learn in Jonah that salvation belongs to who? It belongs to God. Today I want to move forward in our study of the book of Ephesians and explore two more important matters with you. Namely, how we are saved and exactly what we are saved for. And so the title of the message is The Gospel of Grace. With your Bibles open, I want to have you stand as we read this section of Scripture together. It is a section of Scripture that we are very, very familiar with. As I was praying this morning, my prayer for myself and my prayer for each one of you is that as we read verses 8, 9, and 10, we would read these verses like we've never heard them before. That God, by the power of His Holy Spirit, would would awaken us and that we would see wonderful truth in the Word of God. Look with me, beginning in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the infallible, authoritative, inerrant word of the living God. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, for this passage. This is a passage that has been written on many, many hearts here in this congregation. There are... Literally dozens and dozens of people who learn this verse as a child. We have memorized this section of scripture. We know it well. We have assimilated it. We have absorbed it. And today, God, I pray that we would, we would study these verses like it's the very first time that you would awaken in us a sense of, of the holiness of God, the majesty of God, and that we would be reminded of the graciousness of God as we turn our attention to the cross work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, may we never take these great realities for granted. Astonish us this morning with your grace. Astonish us with your great love and your mercy. May we marvel at who you are and all that you desire your people to be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we examine together how we are saved and what we are saved for, we need to regain, in my estimation, some much-needed perspective. We need to remind ourselves, before we dive into these three verses, we need to remind ourselves two very important realities about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first reality that I want to remind you of in order to participate in this gut check is that the gospel you see is countercultural. Have you learned that one? That the gospel is absolutely and fundamentally countercultural. What do I mean? I mean that it it tells us the truth about our condition in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 we just looked at the seven qualities of a person apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the gospel tells us the truth about our sinful condition if you're like me you've run across many many people in this culture and they don't want to hear the truth about their sinful condition These days, many people do not want to face the truth. Have you run into some of those people? They're like the the proverbial ostrich who, who puts his head in the sand. I don't want to hear about my sinful condition. Everything is fine, they say. Well, the gospel tells it straight. The fact of the matter is, we are not fine. Apart from grace, we are not fine. We are broken, sinful people. The great Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who pastored in London for for a number of years, said this. He said, the great obstacle is the obstacle of sin. Sin in general and sins in particular. It is our sins that have come between us and God, close quote. You see, Lloyd Jones was right on target. It is our sin that has separated you and I from a thrice holy God. The gospel is countercultural. Well, it's also countercultural because it tells us that we need to be saved. We need to be saved. The gospel not only tells us that we are lost, it tells us that we need to be rescued. It tells us that we need to be delivered. It tells us that we need to be saved. Moreover, the gospel tells us that we need a savior. The gospel is is countercultural because it also offers a solution, but it is not one solution among many solutions. Have you learned that about American culture? I mean, we have options galore. I remember there was a day when there was something called black coffee period. I remember a day when you would go to Starbucks and they only had two flavors. Well, now you go to Starbucks and I don't know how many flavors they have, and you can get it with sugar-free and you can get whatever flavor you want, and I've been in line with people before behind those people and they order something like this, a venti latte with sugar-free flavoring with extra whipped cream. I still can't figure that one out. Sugar-free flavoring with extra whipped cream, 176 degrees. That's what I want. Like, we have lost our minds. You see, when we talk about the gospel, there are not a multitude of options. There is one option. The gospel offers one solution. The gospel offers one Savior. In addition, this tells us that the Savior is an exclusive Savior. The Bible paints a clear portrait about this Savior. It says this in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else. So there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. The final thing I want you to see about this countercultural gospel. By the way, this is one of those extended, extended introductions. The gospel tells us that all the other competitors are false. Did you hear that? The gospel tells us that all the other competitors are false. Let me speak in clear terms. The gospel tells us that the Hindu deity Vishnu or Shiva, they're false. The gospel tells us that Joseph Smith was false. The gospel tells us that Buddha is false. The gospel tells us that Muhammad is false. The gospel tells us that Islam and Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons are false. And you say, that is highly offensive. Well, the gospel is countercultural. And the gospel is an exclusive gospel. Philip Riken, president of Wheaton College, says, the truth of any one doctrine excludes everything that is contrary to it. As far as the Bible is concerned, says Reichen, truth is not merely a point of view. It is something to believe and to live over against what is false. Francis Schaeffer said, we must act upon, witness, and preach this fact that what is contrary to God's revealed propositional truth is not true. You see, when the Bible says it's one way, that means all the other competing ways are absolutely false. And that is why we say that the gospel is countercultural. Well, it's not only countercultural. We need to understand that the gospel is totally counterintuitive. I remember the first time I heard the word counterintuitive, I had no idea what it meant. And it means something like this. When we say the gospel is counterintuitive, it goes against the standard way of thinking. That's not the way that we think of those things. The gospel is counterintuitive, and here's the first way it is so. The gospel tells us to stop trying to earn brownie points with God. When I was in the eighth grade, I had a science teacher named Mr. Gross, and I learned later that there was a reason for the name. Yeah, I didn't do very well in that class, so I, it was gross. But I remember walking up to this teacher and I said, Mr. Gross, my, my name is, is Davy Steele and you probably know my dad, who was the assistant superintendent of the school district at that time. And he looked me in the eye and said, it's not going to get you an A. And I said, wow, this guy is hardcore. Well, whether I knew it or not, I was, I was trying to earn brownie points with my teacher. We do it all the time. Did you know that I know so-and-so? Did you know I have this skill? Did you know I can do this? Did you know I've been there? Did you know I have this set of experiences? But the gospel tells us, Enough! Stop trying to earn brownie points with God. None of it works. And that's counterintuitive. But the gospel also tells us that we can't work our way to God. It was a few years ago, I, for those of you that weren't here at the time, I, I preached a sermon at the top of a very steep ladder and it was a it was an amazing sermon for one main reason i'm afraid of heights and it was the scariest thing i think i've ever done i'm preaching a sermon at the top of a ladder well what we do in our culture and in cultures that preceded ours is that we feel like we can climb the ladder and earn favor in the eyes of a holy god and it simply doesn't work i i recently read a story about a frog this is the time to wake up I read a story about a frog. And the frog found his, himself in a large can of milk. there 's a large can of milk. And the frog tried everything he knew to get out of this large can of milk. He tried and tried and tried and tried. But he was ultimately unsuccessful. There was nothing that he could do except to keep paddling. Which he did until he churned a pad of butter... And on that pad of butter, he used that as a launching pad to hop out of that large can of milk. It's a cute story. It's a really cute story. But that story, all it does is repeat the errors of Bishop Pelagius, who taught that people could be good apart from grace. The frog story is really somewhat of a parable That many Americans embrace. is It's a kind of a, a folk religion that says, keep on keeping on. Just keep hanging in there and you'll be okay. I'm a good person. I'm not perfect, but there are an awful lot of people that are in much worse condition than I. You see, the gospel is counterintuitive. It tells us, you good people from Linden... You good people from Everson and Sumas, you good people from Nooksack, you good people from Bellingham, you can't work your way to God. The gospel is counterintuitive because it tells us that salvation is free. Now you really understand what counterintuitive means. Because we're taught in our culture, and I'm sure that you've taught your children this, that there's no such thing as a free lunch. This is the first and most important business lesson I ever learned as a young person. My dad taught me, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You have to work in order to secure the things that you would like to have. But in the Christian life, that principle simply is untenable. The gospel tells us that salvation is free. But now it gets really interesting because we not only learn that the gospel is free, we learn that salvation then is costly. What do I mean? Salvation is free for the taking, but once you receive it, you learn that following the Lord Jesus Christ is a costly endeavor. John MacArthur wrote a book that was published in 1988 that created a firestorm. It is marked among one of the most important books that I've ever read. The title of the book is The Gospel According to Jesus. Dr. MacArthur writes, We do not make Christ Lord. He is Lord. Those who will not receive him as Lord are guilty of rejecting him. Faith, MacArthur says, that rejects his sovereign authority is really unbelief. He goes on to say that conversely, acknowledging his lordship is no more a human work than repentance or faith itself. In fact, surrender to Christ is an important aspect of divinely produced saving faith, not something added to faith. The final way I want you to see that the gospel is counterintuitive is that it tells us to deny ourselves. It tells us to deny ourselves. MacArthur continues. He says, The idea of daily self-denial does not jibe with the contemporary belief that believing in Jesus is a momentary decision. A true believer is one who signs up for life. The bumper sticker sentiment, Try Jesus is a mentality foreign to real discipleship. Faith is not an experiment, but a lifelong commitment. He goes on. It means taking up the cross daily, giving up all for Christ each day. It means no reservations, no uncertainty, no hesitation. It means that nothing is knowingly held back, nothing purposefully hidden from His Lordship, nothing stubbornly kept from His control. It calls for painful severing of the tie with the world, a sealing of the escape hatches, a ridding of oneself of any kind of security to fall back on in case of failure. And MacArthur concludes with these thoughts. Genuine believers know they are going ahead with Christ until death. Jesus said it like this. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so we learn in this this moment that we're referring to as a gut check that the gospel is totally countercultural. The gospel is totally counterintuitive. And so we come back to our two questions. How are we saved And exactly what are we saved for? First, how are we saved? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And the answer emerges clearly. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The first answer to our question, how are we saved, is this. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. I want you to see this morning the bottom line of salvation. Here's the bottom line. Sinners need to be saved. Sinners need to be saved. I had a friend who liked to fancy himself as an atheist several years ago, and he came up to me and he asked me if I'd saved anyone lately. And later I had one of those George Costanza moments driving down the road. And I thought, ah, next time he says that, I'm going to say, save from what? And really, that puts the burden of proof on that person. But the fact is, sinners need to be saved. This idea that sinners need to be saved is one of the ongoing themes of the New Testament. The word saved is not a word that we just conjured up in the church and, and popularized it. Rather... It is a biblical word. John chapter 3 verse 17. We all know John 3 16, do we not? Verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Acts 2 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be, help me, saved. Acts 16.31, one that we should be using in evangelism, it says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be, help me, saved. You see, this is not a word, once again, that we, we massaged and popularized in the church. Rather, the word saved is a very important New Testament word. I want you to focus now with me on this, on this word Salvation. On this word, salvation. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. The word that emerges in the original, in the Greek language in verse 8, for salvation, means to rescue from danger. And so it's not unusual to speak of being saved. You might even ask a friend, hey, are you saved? Are you saved? But I want to dig deeper this morning and ask an important question. What exactly do we need to be saved from? And there's several things I want you to consider. First, we need to be saved from our sins. We need to be saved from our sins. My favorite Christmas verse is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that says this about Mary. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Yeshua or Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. We not only need to be saved from our sins, we need to be saved from our lost condition. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the Bible says, For the Son of Man, that is Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. And then finally, we need to be saved from eternal judgment. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, Since then we have been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. And so this is the bottom line of, of salvation. Sinners need to be saved. But there's a second lesson. A second bottom line. I want you to see that that Jesus Christ is the only one in the universe who is qualified to save us. And this is the the precise message that we just read about in Romans chapter 5. That we have been saved by Him from the wrath of God. Once again, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given unto heaven unto men by which we must be saved. This is the bottom line. We're sinners, we're in need of saving, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one in the universe who is qualified to save us from our sins and to save us from eternal judgment. But notice with me also the basis of salvation. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you understand this very well. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it's vital that you recognize this. It's vital that you understand that salvation is by God's grace. It's not by works. It's not by effort. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Wayne Grudem offers a definition of grace. He says it like this, God's grace means God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. That's why when people ask me, how are you? I say, better than I deserve, because I deserve to perish and be punished eternally. Now, one definition of grace puts it like this. This is a definition that Jerry Bridges Posited in one of his books before he went to be with the Lord. It's a definition that he does not embrace. It's a definition that you should not embrace. It goes like this. Grace makes up the difference in what we lack. Now, if you think about that, grace makes up the difference in what we lack. Bridges responds to that. He says, grace is not a matter of God's making up the difference, but God's providing All the cost of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, God generates salvation exclusively. It is by grace alone we make no contributions. But we also learn this, that salvation is not only by God's grace, but we receive this salvation through faith. We receive this salvation through faith. What then is true faith? You can say, I believe in unicorns. You probably shouldn't believe in unicorns, but you can say, I believe in unicorns. You can say, I believe in the Seattle Mariners. That would be highly suspicious, but you could say it. What do we mean then when we say, I believe in something? Here's a brief definition. True faith is belief... Plus, trust. When I say I believe in Jesus, that means I believe that he exists, as Hebrews 11 says, but I also trust him. Or you might say I entrust myself to him. I trust him with my fears. I trust him with my longings. I trust him with my dreams. I trust him with my salvation. And so Paul says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Indeed, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from our sins, saved from our lostness, save from the eschatological wrath of Almighty God. One writer says that we are not in Christ because of our own initiative, but by virtue of God's work in our lives. In other words, we do so to be in Christ, but we only make this choice because God has effectively worked in our lives so that we desire to make this choice. Now there's some language in this passage that we need to, to gaze at for a moment. We see this is not your own doing. We see that this is a gift of God. We see that it's not a result of works so that no one can boast. And so when we receive salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, we give all the glory to God. It's nothing that I could have done. It's nothing that I could have could have earned. It's, it's all all the glory goes to God. There's a third thing, though, I want you to see. is We've hinted at it, but we need to explore it further. We cannot work to receive salvation. We believe, then, what Jesus accomplished for us on His cross. Would you hold your finger in Ephesians 2? And look with me back at the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4. There's a section of Scripture in Romans chapter 4 that uses... Abraham as an example, and he's the best example I can think of, and I'm certain this is why Paul turned our attention to this historical figure of Abraham. And I want you to read with me beginning in verse 3 of Romans chapter 4. He says, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed, and we've We've kind of dissected that word. Belief means, or trust means, I believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as, un, as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Basically what Paul's saying in this passage is this. We're taught in the marketplace of ideas that you work for what you get. That you receive your due for your 40 or 50 hours of employment that week. But what he says concerning salvation is this, you can't work for it. You believe in Christ. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so the answer to our first question, how are we saved? It's simply salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Now, my friends, I want you to remember that when we say that we are saved from the wrath of God by grace alone through faith alone. This sets apart historic Christianity from all the other world religions. Every world religion that I can think of off the top of my head has a component where we work for God. Every world religion that I can think of has a component where we merit favor in the eyes of some kind of a god or deity. And so, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, sets apart historic Christianity from every other world religion, which in the final analysis is works-based. The second question I want to focus on is also vitally important. What exactly are we saved for? And the ver- the answer is found in verse 10. For we are prepared to be astonished. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What are we saved for? Well, Salvation produces good works to the glory of God. Now, something should strike you quickly. You should say in the back of your mind, I thought we don't work for our salvation. And that would be true. We do not ever work for our salvation. But salvation does produce good works. And so look at three glorious realities that surface in verse 10. The first glorious reality is this. We are God's workmanship. We are God's workmanship. The word workmanship comes from the Greek word that means poem. Now, for a lot of the guys, you might think, Oh, great, I'm a poem. Yeah, that's, that's great. The gals might think, Hey, that's, that's kind of neat. Poems are great. It means more, though, than a mere poem. The, the Greek word that is translated workmanship means this. One writer says it can be translated as God's work of art. Doesn't that sound better than poems, guys? We are God's work of art. We are the masterpiece of God. This morning, I don't know what you've been going through this week, and you might think to yourself, Well, Pastor, I don't feel like a masterpiece. Pastor, you you don't know what I went through. You don't know what I endured. You don't know what I did. You don't know what I thought. Listen, the Bible says that if you are in Christ, if you have received salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, you are God's masterpiece. If you have placed faith in Jesus Christ, you are God's work of art. You are His masterpiece. One writer says, The ultimate workmanship of God is a human being who despite being dead in trespasses and sins has been made alive by Christ. You are his masterpiece. He goes on, We are in the hands of the great maker, the ultimate sculptor who created the universe out of nothing. His tools are Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit His word and the preaching of the word. This is the first glorious reality. Oh Christ follower. That you are a masterpiece of God. But the second glorious reality. I want you to see for a moment is this. That we were created for this. We were created for good works. We were created to to use our spiritual gifts. And I think... Quite a bit about Christ fellowship. And I think as I, as I look across the sea of faces, some of you that I'm gazing at now are involved in ministry. You're, you're teaching a Bible study. You're helping with childcare. You're helping to clean the facility. You're involved in, in ministry. You're reaching out to people in the community. But I look at others in the sea of faces and I see a person who comes to church and leaves who comes to church and leaves. And I don't say this to guilt you, but I say you are missing out. Why? We were created for good works. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have been given at least one spiritual gift. Multitudes of people at Christ's Fellowship have been given more than one spiritual gift. Some of you have two or three or four spiritual gifts. And... I would encourage you don't hoard your spiritual gift. Use your spiritual gift to build up the body of Christ. Use your spiritual gift to encourage people in the community so that God would be glorified. What's it look like? You use your spiritual gifts to make a difference in the world. You you minister to the needs of people. You you build things. Some of you like to build things. Use your hands to to build things for the glory of God. That might be as an architect. That might mean as someone who likes to to build models. That might mean that, that you're good at woodworking. That might mean you're a welder. Build things to the glory of God. That means that you might invent things. Perhaps you have a, a scientific mind, you're, you're very left-brained and God has given you great skill and you can, you can invent things that can be used for His purposes, for the glory of God. Using your spiritual gifts means that you teach people, that you teach people the Word of God, that you teach in a, a, an elementary school or a junior high or a high school or a college and you teach people skills so they get along in the community for God's glory. You defend people. Perhaps you're interested in law. And you you defend the person who's been condemned as one who is guilty. You defend people as an attorney. You inspire people. Some of you are poets or songwriters or authors or artists. And you, you do things to inspire people. You counsel people. You lead people in the way of truth. You attend to the physical needs of people. We have some nurses at Christ Fellowship and, and they are, have wonderful gifts of mercy and they attend to the needs of people. They are in the hospital what I call the real heroes of the hospital. They do the, the real work in the hospital to the glory of God. You see, we were created for good works. But there's a third thing I want you to see, a glorious reality. And that is that God has a grand purpose for each one of his people. Each one of God's people has a special set of gifts that are be be, there to be used to glorify Him and serve people in our church family and in our community. And here's what this passage tells us. It tells us that God prepared all of these good works all the way back in eternity past. Look at verse 10. He says, For we are His poem. We are his masterpiece, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's a movement called the Free Grace Movement, the Free Grace Society. Some of you have heard of it. And while the intentions are good and may even be very noble... There's a diabolical heresy that is found in the free grace movement that goes something like this. Don't ever tell a sinner, don't ever tell a person that receives salvation that good works are necessary. Listen, verse 10 tells us that if there are no good works in your life, you are not a Christian. You say, but pastor, I thought we were saved by grace alone through faith alone. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But when you receive that gift, that gift of justifying grace produces, it produces good works to the glory of God. God prepared them beforehand that you should walk in them. And so the answer to our question is very clear and it is the truth point this morning that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and produces good works to the glory of God. A few days ago, all of you heard this news. I remember I, I woke up and I looked at my phone and it said the legendary figure Billy Graham has died and gone to be with his Savior He's one of the most recognized faces in the evangelical world. And as, as Russell Moore said yesterday on Fox News, as he was interviewed, he was asked, will there ever be another Billy Graham? And basically the answer is, we're never going to see anyone like Billy Graham again. He was an absolutely pivotal figure. I saw Billy Graham preach several times in the kingdom. I saw Billy Graham preach several times in Spokane, Washington. I saw Billy Graham preach several times in the Tacoma Dome. And so I probably saw Dr. Graham speak at least a dozen times as a young person, as a child, as a teenager. This is a man who preached to to millions and millions of people in almost 200 countries over the course of his ministry. And here is the message that he consistently preached for his whole life. Salvation it's by grace alone, through faith alone, that produces good works to the glory of God. Perhaps you have heard these words that Billy Graham uttered several years ago. He said this, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Billy Graham said, Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I have just changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Close quote here 's my question this morning. Can you say that with that degree of confidence, like Billy Graham did before he went to be with his Savior? Have you received god 's gift of salvation by, by grace alone, through faith alone? And oh Christian, are, are you bearing good fruit? to the glory of God. Next week, we'll be offering, as Ken mentioned, a new round of Veritas classes. And one of the classes that will be taught is a class on membership. And this is designed especially for those of you who have been kind of giving Christ Fellowship a test drive. You've been attending, but you're not yet a member. This is the opportunity for you to plug in and learn how to use your spiritual gifts for the glory of God at Christ Fellowship. And I want to commend that class to you. And for those of you who are already using your spiritual gifts and need a refresher, it would also be an encouragement for you to come and, and encourage others who are just checking Christ Fellowship out. Here's the bottom line this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that in eternity past, that God ordained that we would walk in a way that pleases Him by bearing good fruit to His glory. Are you bearing good fruit to the glory of God? Are you, are you using spiritual gifts so that, that people would be encouraged and edified and that God would be honored? And I want to encourage young people too. If you're a, a junior high or a high school or a grade school student, Are you using your spiritual gifts to the glory of God? One of the great tragedies, one of the the things that we need to do better as a church is this, is to encourage children and young people to get involved in ministry. It can be as simple as passing bulletins out, but using your gift to encourage Christ fellowship, using your gifts to encourage people in our community, using your gifts to the glory of God. How is the gospel of grace revolutionizing your life. Let's pray together. Father, help us not to take for granted the, the free gift of salvation. We remember the words of the reformers who said that we are justified by faith alone, but faith is never alone. That is to say, once we have received that free gift, we acknowledge that justifying grace Produces spiritual fruit for your honor and your glory, and so God, would you challenge your people afresh this morning? And even as we have time for extended worship here in these remaining minutes, I pray that you would turn our hearts uh, to the Savior. I pray that uh, repentance would be fresh, that worship would be sweet, that you would you would turn our affections Godward, God, that you would reorient. You would reorganize our priorities, that we would shuffle the, the priorities in our lives so that, so that Jesus would take first place. May that happen for someone today. May that happen for a handful of people, perhaps even dozens of people, where our priority, our new priority is, is Jesus first and everything else follows behind. May the Lordship of Christ reign supreme in our lives on this day. And as we worship you, may you receive the sacrifice of our praise as we desire to glorify you, our great God and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.